Now may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. At the end of each one of our services here in town, we all say something together before we leave. We say, let us... Okay, come on, really? I don't ask a lot from you people. Let us go forth and serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, was that so hard? Come on. I wonder how much attention we truly give to that sentence. What does it mean to serve the world? What is it about loving Jesus that compels us to serve the world? Why is it at the end of worship that we are sent out into the world? The connection between serving the world and worshiping. And then... Does the world really want my service? Do they really want to hear from a Christian? And yet, there it is every week. We all say it together. We don't say everything together in every service, but that one we do. Because it's definitive for who we are as the people of God. Certainly, we confess, we praise, we listen, we proclaim, we eat, all in response to what Christ has said and done first, but he does one final thing that is just as significant as everything else. He sends us. Matthew 10 is Jesus' sending of the apostles to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew names the ones who are sent in verse 1 of chapter 10. They are obscure, nondescript people who didn't even fully understand what they were supposed to say when they went on Jesus' mission trip. Two of the ones who were sent would eventually betray Jesus, albeit in different ways. Peter, the one who's listed first, and Judas, the final one Matthew lists. The missionaries are bracketed by the traitors. Think about that. This is in the early stages of Jesus' earthly ministry. There had been no confrontation with the Jew Jewish religious leaders or with Rome at this point. John the Baptist was still alive. The transfiguration was yet to take place. Jesus hadn't yet spilled the beans about his impending death and resurrection. These were early days. They weren't even sure if Jesus was truly the Son of God. Peter's messianic declaration would come much later. And yet, for all of their ignorance, for all of their sins, for all of their foibles, these are the ones... Jesus sent to preach, to preach that the kingdom of heaven was near. Preachers. He sent out preachers. Proclaimers that God's kingdom had arrived on earth. Can you imagine the response they might have received? I imagine it wasn't much different than the response 
you might get if you did preaching down at Pioneer Square. Most of us um, have found our way into this Christianity business not because we were on some intellectual or moral mission to find the meaning of life. For the most part, that's not true. For most of us, God grabbed us by the collar and pulled us into something we didn't and probably still don't fully understand. If you're ever confronted with questions from non-Christians about God, how confident are you about the answers? If you're like most of us, you wonder. I'm not sure what to say about the Trinity, about the Christian faith in general, about sexual ethics, about what God teaches about this or that. How do I explain God's actions that are found in the Old Testament? We might stumble over our words, right? And yet, we're the ones who say each week, let us go forth and serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior. Every week, every week, we're being sent. Peter's, Judas's, Simon the Zealots, what a nickname, I imagine he had a temper. Hated and despised people like Matthew the tax collector. A bunch of obscure nobodies who gets sent on mission to tell the world that God's kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. When I put it that way, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? And you may be thinking, look, man, I'm just trying to get through algebra too. This isn't my thing. I understand. But tough luck. You're here. And you're being sent. With all of your ignorance and sin and failures you've already made and the ones you are yet to make, you are preachers for the kingdom of God. Isn't it fascinating that this sending precedes full knowledge about God and His kingdom? It's more about going and less about knowing. How's that for a good Baptist catchphrase, right? I haven't had one of those in a long time. More about going, less about knowing. Not that knowing doesn't matter, but Jesus didn't seem too concerned about that. Christianity isn't primarily a system of doctrines to acknowledge, or a prayer to be prayed, or a philosophy separate from an embodiment of the life of Christ in the world. In other words, being a Christian means that we live in a particular way. Jesus told the disciples to go, and then he told them what to do. It's striking that Matthew bothers to name these men, and then describe what they did. If Christianity was simply a set of facts, or wise teachings to help us get the most out of life, we wouldn't need to know from Matthew who went out on mission and what they did. But that's not what Christianity is. 
The good news of Jesus must be embodied in people who speak and live in certain ways so that others may have an encounter with the living Lord. That's the way it works. That's why we're sent. The encounter with Jesus is one that embarks us on a journey of following Him. A journey of action. Of a relational dynamic that animates our souls and our bodies to follow Jesus all the way to the end of our lives. We are not assenting to a set of ideas. We are on the move with Jesus being sent. In the evenings, um, while I'm watching the news or what have you, there's a commercial that comes on every now and then. Franklin Gray. Remember the name? You know Franklin? Billy's son? Good old Franklin. He's still telling us that all we have to do to get our ticket to heaven is to pray that prayer right after he does. Now if you do that, Franklin says, you're in. Nothing to worry about now. You're a child of God. Oh sure, find a good church where you'll be taught how to be a good father, how to obey your parents, manage your money, all of that. But the important thing is done. You've said the prayer, you are in the club. Did you pick up on my sarcasm? I can use sarcasm. Jesus used sarcasm. So do the, so the prophets. Sarcasm is all through the Bible. Don't get mad at me about that. Just following in our Lord's steps. It grieves me when Franklin thinks he can take 30 seconds on television to say that Jesus died on the cross so that you can go to heaven and the way to get there is just a few verbal affirmations. I genuinely wonder what he thinks about passages like Matthew 10. I do. What do you do with what Jesus says here? And for that matter, what do you do with what Jesus says throughout the Gospels? Jesus never said, hey, just pray a prayer and we're good. Can we find anywhere in his sermons where he said anything approaching? Look, if you'll just say the magic words that I'm your God, then once saved, always saved. He did not, if you're wondering. He said, if you want anything to do with me, get out there. Proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Raise the dead. That's what he said in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Raise the dead. He said to get used to the idea that the people you preach to will think you've lost your mind and they'll be furious with you, that they'll assume, so furious that they'll assume you're trying to overthrow their government and way of life and they'll persecute you and they'll throw you in jail. That's coming. Don't worry. I'm just telling you in advance. This is the preparation for the mission trip. This is the preparation for being worthy of Jesus. This is what he said in our reading. And then he goes on. When you get asked questions about me in the kingdom of God, you won't have any idea what to say. Because you're ignorant. 
Go anyway. And when you do, I'll make sure the Spirit gives you the right words in that moment. And then he says, the face of all this madness, it's only the one who endures all the way to the end who will be saved. I know we're uncomfortable with language like this. We don't like such responsibility on our shoulders. But Bonhoeffer warned us about cheap grace, didn't he? He said it in his words and in his life that we shouldn't expect to get the benefits of eternal bliss apart from carrying a cross. For a lifetime. Oh yeah, did you catch that one in the reading? Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I don't care if you pray to prayer. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Apparently, a lot more about our lives matters to Jesus than whether we said a prayer one day. Apparently, it matters greatly how we view the cross and whether or not we're happy to carry one on our own backs. To be his sent one out in the world, to speak and live in such a way that the world doesn't know what to do with us. It sounds to me like our eternal destiny and our union with God depend upon the kind of outrageous and unreasonable love for God that would even sever our earthly and familial relations. And it depends upon our willingness to endure the humiliation of believing and proclaiming that the death of a male Jew is the way to become a human who's fully alive. And we do that for a lifetime, all the way to the end. And Jesus says the one who does that and endures to the end will be saved. That is a tall task. That's a real challenge. Young people, you should test the water a bit if you dare. If you're courageous. Tell your fellow Portland students that their identity isn't found in their friend group or their social media standing or their sexual expression. Tell them their identity is only truly found in God and God is only truly found in Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus of Nazareth is discovered in this ancient book called the Bible and sitting around with a bunch of weirdos on a Sunday listening to that book and chomping and chewing on his body and blood is the only way to find your true identity. Just give it a go and let me know how it turns out. If you do it, I can promise you a few things. 
Just like Jesus promised the disciples, it will be awkward. People will be upset with you. You will lose your reputation and credibility if you're at all serious about it. And if you do try it, let me assure you, you will feel the weight of that cross on your back. But let me also assure you that if you do love God more than your status amongst your peers, if you do take up your cross and follow Jesus, Jesus promises you the special, intimate, all-powerful presence of God Himself to hold you, to guide you, to give you words that you didn't know you had, and to fill your heart with courage and faithfulness that you don't see when you look at And if you try it, you're in very good company. You're in the company of Peter and John and Andrew and Priscilla and Mary Magdalene and the demoniac at the tombs. You're in the company of St. Augustine and Teresa of Avila. You'll be in the company of Hus and Latimer and Ridley, who all three paid with their lives, burned at the stake, because they wouldn't shut up about Jesus. And the list goes on. Somehow, somehow, in the face of losing everything in this life, reputation, credibility, friendship, standing, everything, we find it. Isn't that strange? Backwards even? But this backward path is the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus matters for our eternal souls. Apparently it also matters to Jesus how we feel about our family. That certainly swims against the tide of both our secular and Christian cultures, doesn't it? Why do you think Jesus decided to offend pretty much everyone by saying he's going to bring a sword to families. Shouldn't Jesus, of all people, focus on the family? As Bonhoeffer says in the quote in the front of our liturgy today, who dares to speak about a father's love and mother's love to a son or daughter in such a way, if not either the destroyer of all life, the creator of the new life. Ah, there's the clue. The sword that Christ brings is not a sword that destroys life and families, but it is a sword that cuts away at all the gods in this world on which we place our trust. And it creates new life by means of His, by means of Christ's own death on the cross. The sword of the cross is the possibility that we can now be in a family much bigger and greater and more wonderful 
than our narrow, isolated nuclear family at home that can, and often does, become an idol. Many years ago, I, I can use that phrase now, many years ago I was, many years ago I was a youth pastor, we don't call them youth pastors these days, we call them directors of student ministry or something like that, but I was a youth pastor at the time, after a few years I felt like I had run my course as a youth pastor, and I was ready for something else, but it wasn't because of the students, it wasn't because of the young people, you know who the problem was? Parents. Oh, the parents. One thing I learned very quickly in student ministry, I could offer the most pointed, bordering on harsh challenges directly to a parent about him or herself, and they'd just shrug their shoulders and take it in stride. I'm probably right about that. I do need to work on that. But if I offered the mildest suggestion to a mother, about her son or daughter, the gloves were off, baby. Do you think it's possible that we might allow a beautiful and incredible reality like the family, don't get me wrong, I have my own, to become an idol that pulls us away from the kind of radical commitment to Jesus being a member of the kingdom of God, do you think that's possible? Jesus seems to think so. And Jesus says, for you to become the human being that I've created for you to be, for you to know the joys of life with God, the sword of the cross must kill everything that keeps you away from me. And if you do, if you do, if you do, You'll find out what it truly means to be alive. You'll find your life. But you've got to let go of all of that other stuff that pulls our hearts, that occupies us, that grabs our attention away from Jesus. And Jesus says, as crazy as it sounds, trust me. Trust me. Henry, now I'm well-known, beloved writer and priest became fascinated in his latter years of life with a group of trapeze artists called the Flying Rodleys. There's a book about this now. Uh, now he was so taken with them that he followed them around like a trapeze groupie of sorts. And he got to know them pretty well. And one day he was sitting and talking with Rodley, the leader of the group, about flying through the air like he does. And he said, Rodley said, as a flyer, I must have complete confidence in my catcher. The public might think that I'm the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision as I come to him through the air. And now I said, how does it work? And the secret, Rodley said, is the flyer does nothing, and the catcher does everything. 
When I fly to Job, I have simply to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely behind the apron and the catcher. You do nothing? Not on set? Nothing, said Rob. The worst thing the flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. Joe's supposed to catch me. If I try to catch Joe, I might break his wrists or he might break mine and it would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly, a catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch. And when Jesus says, die to everything, 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 even your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, Die to everything that would keep you from me. And when he says, life's going to get hard when you do that. And it will take courage. And it goes against everything that we're told to make our lives as comfortable as possible. And when he says, forget about your reputation. And fly out into the unknown with me. You'll get it. Hold you. And he'll give you the words to say. And he'll take care of your reputation. Because he takes you straight to the Father, the throne of God. And he'll take care of those who hate you and lie about you and mistreat you. So don't fret about them or be anxious. And he'll take care of the hurt and the anxiety and the fear in your heart. Because he's got you. That's the power of the sword of the cross. To cut away all of that other stuff that pulls us away from the only one who can give us life. Death for him. Life for us. Thanks for your God.